Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of A Good Drop, where each week and every week we travel across the Indian Ocean for a bender on South African booze. Yes, that's right. We are finding ourselves deep within Africa, talking all about South African drinks. Yeah, there's a, there's a few here that we want to talk about, and some we hadn't heard of before. I'm Stu. I'm Michael. Cheers. Cheers. Alright, yes indeed, South African drinks. There's, there's a few here, there's a few we hadn't heard of, and a few that we were like, what on earth is this? Yeah, and uh, certainly there's some with a lot more history and a lot more info about them than others. Mm. And uh, we'll talk about them mostly, but that's why we're being general and talking South African drinks as a whole rather than getting too specific. Because, I mean, yeah, we'll get down to the specifics on some, but there's just not enough information for us to talk about it for half an hour. Yeah. But uh, let's, I suppose let's get started on our list. Yes, let's. So we've got number one is Umkombothi. So it is a beer made from uh, corn or maize, maize malt, sorghum malt, yeast and water. It's the, well, it was the most popular beer in uh, South Africa for a very long time. Uh, not so much now, but it is uh, quite low in alcohol. Uh, it has a heavy and distinctly sour aroma, which means it's got a bit of an acquired taste. Yeah, undoubtedly. And uh, I think quite a few of these that we talk about are acquired tastes. And it certainly, uh, I know you, you can't see the picture I'm looking at at the moment, but uh, it looks interesting. It looks foamy. It looks chunky. That too, yeah. It it almost looks like dishwashing liquid. Yeah. Mixed in with water or something. Yeah. It's a it's a traditional kind of, traditional style of drink, which means it varies from region to region and is traditionally prepared over a fire outside of the house. It then passively cools to ambient temperature. It then passively cools to ambient temperature inside the house. Uh, ingredients are equal measures corn, cornmeal, uh, crushed mealy malt or corn malt, and crushed sorghum malt. The uh, maize malt provides a lighter toned beer with a mellower flavour, and the sorghum malt provides a darker beer. So already it sounds kind of chunky, doesn't it? It does. It does. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm. I'm not sure if it's something that I want to try. Really, I'm. I'm curious, but yeah, it doesn't sound too appealing. Um, the ingredients are then mixed into a cast iron pot. Uh, four measures of wa- warm water are added. The mixture is left overnight, and starts fermenting by the morning. Um. Obviously, the it's it's made very similar to beer. Uh, the traditional method of testing how testing to see if it's ready is to hold a lit match over the top of it, and if the match goes out, it's ready. Well, that's an interesting methodology. Mm. Well, the the yeast produces CO two, 
And, and of course, that would blow out the match. Hmm. Yeah. Quite interesting. It's like, it's fascinating how they worked out how to make beer from corn. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that is a very interesting thing. Now, there is another kind of beer. I'll talk about that uh, a little later on when we get to talking about a specific tree and the fruits from it. Let's continue our way through this list first. We'll double back to that because there's lots of information on that. I'm not even going to mm. mention it now. <laughs> uh, so that's the thing that's coming later. It's a teaser for later. Oh, there's one more thing that I want to talk about with this beer, though, because it's not. It, it's, it's, it differs from regular beer like lagers or ales. Because when the brew is ready, the fermented mash is filtered through a strainer and then the sediment at the bottom is added back into the strained beer to give it extra flavor. And, you know, once it's been strained, it's poured into a large communal pot ready for sharing with friends and family. Right, so they filter it and then just put straight back in the stuff that they filtered out. Some of it. The the bulk of it goes into the chicken feed. Right. Yeah. But a sour sour flavor. Hmm. I mean, we've had sour beers before. We have. But they're generally on the fruitier end of the spectrum. Yeah. So, uh, I guess let's let's move on to the second thing in this list that we're looking at here, the uh, Whitblitz, which literally translates as white lightning. <laughs> and it is also known as firewater, and it's mm. made from grapes. It's a grape-fermented amateur brandy, because most of these are DIY jobs that have been made by families in or around the home. Mm. But this is this tends to be more like moonshine than brandy. Yeah, it's mostly produced and consumed in the Western Cape, apparently. Mm. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's a South African moonshine. Uh, third on the list is Mampua. Uh, it's a fruitier alternative to Whitblitz, made from peach, apricot, lychee, and other fruit. It's said to be named after the petty chief Mampuru and is most commonly consumed in the northern parts of South Africa, though it can also be bought online. Which we, we looked for this one, but we couldn't find it. Yeah, it uh, wasn't at. Any of the places that provide to us here in the land down under, sadly. Mm. Although technically they're a land down under too. Well, that is true. That is that well, is very true. The, not the whole land though. Pa- no. Parts of it is above the equator. Yes. But yeah, still at the same uh, distance from the Antarctic. Yeah. And uh, so number four on this list actually brings us to the tree and the plant. And what we're drinking and today. what we're drinking right now, exactly. Because uh, we are drinking Amarula, mm. which is a cream liqueur that, unlike most cream liqueurs that are made off a you know, plain spirit or brandy spirit base. Or whiskey, or whiskey, in the case of Bailey's. Yeah. This one is made from a Marula spirit base. So that's a spirit made from the fruit of the marula tree. So amarula is a cream liqueur that is made using sugar, cream, and the fruit of the African marula tree. The fruit has a light yellow skin with white flesh. It is apparently succulent and tart with a strong and distinctive flavor. 
Now, uh, Amarula was first marketed as a liqueur in September of 1989, but they had been producing the Marula spirit since 1983. And uh, apparently Amarula is sold in over 100 countries and is the most widely distributed alcoholic beverage in South Africa. Hmm. Interesting that you can buy a Marula liqueur or Marula... Yeah, Marula, Marula Spirit. Spirit. Well, that, I, I'm not sure that you can anymore. Oh. And that's that's the trick. They began making the Spirit in 1983, realized they could turn the Spirit into the cream, and I think stopped marketing the Spirit. Oh, right. Because so I wasn't able to find anywhere now that you can purchase the Marula Spirit, mm. only Amarula, the Marula cream, but I guess... Because there's only so many of these marula trees around the place. And they're enormous trees. Like each tree only fruits once a year Mm. and produces between 500 kilos and two tons of fruit. Wow. Well, it's surprising that they don't make a a wine out of it either because um, the, the elephants, monkeys and other animals quite often get drunk on these marula fruits. They do. They they love them. And one of the reasons why there is an elephant on the bottle of the Amarula is that it is known as the fruit that drives elephants mad. They actually have been known to ram the trees to make fruit fall off them if there's none <laughs> sitting on the ground. Yeah. And probably makes them mad because they're drunk. Yeah. And, these, uh... these elephants are mad drunks. <laughs> Yeah, so let's let's talk about how they get the spirit out of the marula because that's really interesting. Well, let's talk about the taste first because we've got some ice in it to cool ice it down, it's, but it's also going to melt. Yes, yes. So let's let's smell it because it's right. it's a very interesting smell. It smells kind of like rock melon, and yeah, and a little bit caramelly. Mm. It's quite a nice smell. Yeah. Hopefully, it tastes as nice. Cheers. Cheers. Tastes like rock melon caramel and cream. Yeah. Wow. It's actually really nice. Oh, it is. I'm impressed that it's this nice. Mm, remarkably so. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, these, a lot of these local spirits tend not to be very nice or they're an acquired taste. Yeah. And once you acquire the taste, they're amazingly pleasant. But on the first outing, you tend to, whoa. Mm. But there's a lot. Tastes potent. There's a lot of warmth on the back. Yeah, though uh, Amarula is uh, only seventeen percent, so standard sort of cream liqueur strength. Mm. Yeah, but surprisingly um, nice. Yeah, so they they hand harvest the fruit from the Amarula tree, mm-hmm. and then they crush it away from the the kernel because it doesn't have a, a seed it has a kernel well, they, they call it a kernel rattle and a seed in the middle of it interesting and um yeah the flesh is then separated from the skin before being fermented in a similar way to how pressed grapes are fermented when you make wine yeah. and they then take that fermentation and double distill it then mature it in small oak casks for two years Wow, so this process is actually quite intense. Yeah, and that that's just how they get the spirit that they use as the base for this cream liqueur. Mm. 
So they spent two years making the base spirit, and then they turned it into a cream liqueur. Interesting. Yeah, they mix it with cream and bam, Amarula. I would be very interested to taste the base spirit before it's mixed with cream. Yeah, so would I, because you have to figure that a lot of that flavor is the base spirit and the cream and sugar is just the sweetness. Mm. Like, yeah, I wonder if it's a lot like, uh, what was the sweetest spirit that we had? There was a sweet spirit that we had. Oh, uh, perhaps a bit like um, Canadian whiskey. Oh, yeah. Which they make using um, maple. Mm. Because it was quite sweet for for a whiskey. Yeah. So, I want... But I wonder if that's like... Mm. But it's interesting because they say that the fruit itself is quite tart. Mm. Well, that's... Look at Calvados. Yeah. That's made with apples that are so tart they're inedible. Yeah, true. And once you've gone through all that effort and converted it, and I guess, yeah, this stuff has, you know, the spirit's matured in barrels for two years. Mm. It's mellowed, it's developed its flavors. Yeah. And they would have only used two years because South Africa can be quite a hot place. Yeah, very true. Mm. Uh, so, you said there was a beer. There is. Based on this. The fruit of the marula tree is also used to brew marula beer, which is also known as makope or ubuganu. And uh, it is commonly made at home in South Africa with the knowledge of how to make it passed down from mother to daughter or sometimes from grandmother to granddaughter. Oh, wow. And uh, the production is actually a social event in which other women join the women who own the land with the marula tree on it and provide their labor in exchange for a share of the produce from what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, they collect the ripe fruits from the ground under the tree and then they remove the skin with a butter knife, spoon or fork after which the pulp, pips, and juice are placed into a large container. They add just enough water to cover everything that's in the container, and then they mash it thoroughly until the liquid has become quite thick. Then they pick up the the bits of fruit and squeeze the last of the juice out, then remove the pips and the pulp after which they leave the containers for two to four days and the end result is beer. Wow. I would also be interested in tasting this. We definitely need to like travel around the world just to taste local spirits and drinks. Yeah, that's a he- that'd be a heck of an episode. Well, several episodes. Yeah. Maybe we should do that someday. Just literally travel around the world and taste. Taste things. Yeah. So that, as far as I'm aware, is the only other... Beverage made from the marula fruit. Mm. But then I guess, you know, they have to fight the elephants for it, really. So there's only so many things you can yeah. do with it. Yeah. Especially that, since it only fruits once a year. That's pretty funny, though. And I suppose if they had uh, farms of it, if they had, uh, sorry, not farms, plantations, the elephants would know exactly where to go to... Raid, raid these trees. 
And you'd have a bigger problem because there'd be more elephants. Yeah, that all just hang about. <laughs> yeah. These giant plantations of marula trees. Yeah. All right, next on our list, uh, wines. So South Africa produces a lot of really good internationally acclaimed wines. Uh, one, well, one called uh, Jerapigo, which is a sweet dessert wine with a dash of brandy. So basically a fortified wine. The other one is Pinotage, which is a mix of Sinsut and Pinot Noir grapes. So Pinotage is a red wine grape that is South Africa's signature variety. Uh, it was initially cultivated in 1925 uh, as a cross between the, the Pinot Noir and Sinsut, or locally known is Sinsut Salt is uh, locally known as Hermitage, meaning giving the origin to the the name Pinotage. Uh, it is a it typically produces a deep red, uh, deep red wine with smoky bramble and earthy flavors, sometimes with notes of bananas and tropical fruit. Uh, it has been criticized for sometimes smelling of acetone. So it, it's a unique grape. Like it was first cultivated in. 1925 as a as a interspecies intraspecies cross as opposed to a, a uh, interspecies cross or hybrid so two two grapes of the same or a similar varietal same same plant um not uh two completely different grape species that were then crossed together into one new grape species mm. So to produce that. Yeah. More more of the same. Two two parents from the same country as opposed to two parents from two different countries, I guess. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good way to put it. It was created by a man called Abraham Isaac Perold, the first professor of viticulture at Stellenbosch University. Uh he Perold was attempting to combine the best qualities of the robust Hermitage grape with the Pinot Noir grape, a grape that makes great wines, but can be difficult to grow. Uh, he planted some seeds in his garden and then promptly forgot all about them until many years later when he transferred to a, to a new university and his successor found them as his garden was getting cleaned out. Mm, so they had grown all by themselves with no intervention. Yeah. Uh, the young plants were then moved to Ellen Elsenberg, Al- moved to Elsenberg Agricultural College under Perold's successor C.J. Theron, and in 1935, Theron grafted them onto new established rootstocks to uh, avoid the Philozera nightmare. Because they're still doing that; they're still uh, preventing that outbreak on still uh, grafting grape vines onto the American rootstock to stop them coming back. And I think we're used to the flavors by now. Yeah, well. The first wine from these grapes was made in 1941 at Ellensburg and the first uh, commercial plantings at Myrtle Groves near St. Lowry's Pass. That That's about it for the history of that one. Um now, we're up next on our list is beer, but not the beer we were talking about before, or the other beer we talked about before that, 
but the beer that people generally think of when they think of beer. Because, of course, as with every other country, South Africa brews that too. Yes. And uh, so what makes their beer differ to the rest of the world? So they, um, you know, produce the standard sorts of beers that everybody does and they have, you know, small breweries, craft breweries are, um, as with everywhere, becoming increasingly popular in South Africa where they are producing their own varieties of beers. And uh, some of their local craft breweries, and I'll name a few off for any of our listeners in South Africa, are uh, Mitchell's, Jack Black, Porcupine Quills Brewery, Black Horse Brewery, Gilroy's Brewery, and Sabi Brewing. All right, so next on our list is the Van der Hoom Liqueur, created by a Dutchman over 300 years ago. This original Cape Citrus Liqueur combines spices, herbs, sugar, tangerines, pot still brandy and diluted wine it's a it's named after its original creator and is a firm favorite amongst south africans yeah and uh springbok is uh, up next which is technically not a drink in and of itself it is well it's a cocktail made with amarula Amarula and creme de menthe. Yeah, and named after the South African sports team that wears gold and green. <laughs> and looks kind of similar if, you know, if Amarula were a golden color rather than being brown. Mm. But um, very pleasant. It's uh, a drink that is generally poured layered so that you've got an obvious split between the two. Looks very good that way. And um, yeah, it is Amarula and peppermint liqueur or green creme de menthe. And it's served in bars everywhere. Like pretty much anywhere you can ask for a a springbok and they'll give Mm. you one if they've got some Amarula. Otherwise, they'll probably give you one using Baileys. Which wouldn't be too far off, I guess. No, the flavors are similar. Mm. I suppose here you'd have to make it with a mixture of Bailey's melon liqueur and uh, creme de menthe. Just to get the similar flavours, I mean. Yeah, if you wanted to get the similar flavour, yes. I guess last on our list is uh, is Rubos, which is a tea. But given our last, last week's episode, it bears worth mentioning. Yeah, sort of a nod back in time. Hmm. Uh, it's a tea made in the... Well, it's a plant. There's a lot of history on Rubos, actually. Um, there's probably enough for its own episode, but where we are a alcohol podcast, not a tea podcast. Yes, correct. Uh, it uh, literally translates to red bush in Afrikaans. It's a broom-like member of the family Fab- Fabaceae that grows in South Africa's Finbos. Uh, the leaves... Uh, what's used to make the herbal tea. Um, it's also called uh, bush tea, red tea, or red bush tea. Uh, it's very, It's been popular in South Africa for generations. Um, obviously, it's now consumed worldwide. Um, it's not as old as the, as the tea that we all talked about, that we both talked about last week. It's not as ancient as the tea that was talked about last week. Uh, given it's only been around, well, 
the we only have proof that it's been around since the late 18th century. Yeah, not nearly as uh, as long as the other ones, but apparently it's very good for you. Packed full of antioxidants hmm. and uh, frequently added to other teas to enhance their flavors. Apparently, and yeah, very very red. Mm. So yeah, there's actually no caffeine in R- Ruibos tea, uh, making it good for people that are sensitive to it. Yeah, so it's a tea that you can drink to help you to relax and uh, not keep you awake mm. if you're very sensitive to caffeine. Yeah, uh, one um, one theory of where it came from is that it's a traditional drink of the Khoi-descended people of the uh, Cedarburg region. Uh, and there's uh, historical records of Rubos use in pre-colonial and early colonial times, mostly because the early settlers were looking for an alternative to the very expensive Asian varieties. Yeah, which, again, it, it makes good sense that people are going to look for something else that they can turn into tea when they're used to drinking tea. Mm. And when the British went to South Africa, they were looking for all sorts of things, for everything. Quite a, quite amazing how tea became so entrenched in British society. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm having flashbacks to our last episode. Yeah. We should We should stop ourselves before we get too entrenched in talking about tea. Very true. Well, that's, a, that's about it for this episode then. Yeah, so if uh, you happen to be from South Africa and want to give us more information on something, if you've drunk the things that we've talked about, if you were intrigued about them and uh, you know, learned something new or if you want to tell us how wrong we were, do email us on the address that will come up later. We do want to hear from you. Mm. And if you liked what you heard and haven't already, we'd love you to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. You can find us on Podbean, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, Google Play, Apple Podcasts. We're all over the podcast networks as a good drop all about alcohol. You can also find us on the socials, Facebook and Instagram as a good drop podcast. And if you want to check out our library of previous episodes you can uh, find our website agooddrop.com.au and if you've got any comments questions uh, corrections if we like if we've made a mistake let us know um, and if you've got any suggestions for future episodes send us an email to agooddrop at gmail.com And do be sure to tune in to our next episode when we dig deeper into the inner workings of beer and talk about hops. Mm. It is a very, very important part of the beer making process and has a huge effect on the flavor. Yeah, we'll be hopping to it next time. (laughs) So until then, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.